If you're a guest of ours this morning, we hope that you are finding us, have found us to be a community that's honest, open, vulnerable. And in the coming moments, as we open God's Word, we also hope that you'll see that we're a community of people who, when we open up the pages of Scripture, we actually believe that God's going to speak to us. We're expectant that we're going to hear the voice of God through the words on these pages. To that end, let me pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Young or old, we sometimes are faced with the decision to suffer or to sin. It's the young woman in high school either to, on one hand, agree to be sexually active, or on the other hand, to be the only one without a homecoming date. Suffer or to sin. It's the salesperson who is faced with the choice, either to bend the rules a little bit, like everybody else in the industry does to get the sale, or, on the other hand, to take the risk of not getting the sale and not getting then eventually to maybe to suffer or to sin. We are faced with that situation, that choice to suffer, to sin, when God's expectations don't match society's expectations. Now, that isn't always the way it is. In past weeks, even in this series, we've heard about times, and we've reflected on times, in which God's expectations actually can align with society's expectations, and we've been counseled in this book that we're reading through this fall to try to meet both whenever we can, whenever possible, meet God's expectations and society's expectations. However, the farther a society gets from God, the more often we'll be faced with a choice either to suffer or to sin. And that's the choice highlighted in our scripture text today. So would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4? 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're here with us for the first time this fall, this is the letter of 1 Peter that we're walking through. First chapter by chapter. It's written by one of Jesus' disciples, a guy named Peter, about 30 years ago. Jesus died and rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. Peter's writing to Christians in modern-day Turkey who at the time were being pushed to the margins in society for the first time as a result of their faith. And so he started out this letter referring to them, addressing them as exiles, people sojourning in a place that's not their home. Where we left off at the end of chapter 3, Peter's been addressing these exiles, reminding them of their identification with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who himself experienced victory through suffering, going to his own ultimate exile experience when he was taken to the cross. And then today, what we're going to see is Peter leaning more into the implication of that, which is his reader's victory through their own suffering, especially the sort of suffering that comes as a result of choosing to suffer rather than to sin. So to suffer rather than to sin. Would you follow along and look for that as I read out loud, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, 
arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Here's how this passage kind of breaks out. There's a command in verse 1. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And then three times in the passage, we see the word for. Those mark out sections of the passage that give three reasons for the command that was back in verse 1. So that's how we'll walk through the text. A command and then three reasons for that command. So first the command is this. Let's imitate Christ's resolve to suffer rather than to sin. That's our big idea for today. It's the command seen in verse 1. Let's imitate Christ's resolve to suffer rather than to sin. I say imitate there because of that language there in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, that's setting us up for imitation. And then it says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So we're to imitate Christ's way of thinking. And what I'm about to make the case for is that the way of thinking that we're called to imitate is the way of thinking that says it's better to suffer than to sin. Let me make that case briefly. We have to kind of zoom out on what's been going on in the whole. Here's how the argument Chapter 3, verse 17, we saw that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Peter just stated that. Then in verses 18 to 22 last week, we saw how Christ is an example of just that. Suffering for doing good rather than sinning. And now in chapter 4, verse 1, Peter says, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, namely the thinking of Christ here, which was... It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If you're faced with a choice to suffer or to sin, better to suffer than to sin. So let's reflect on that just for a moment and what the Bible teaches about Christ's suffering. The Bible teaches that our Lord Jesus Christ is in glory now. He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he could have sought out a path to that glory that uh, was a shortcut, namely bypassing the suffering of the cross. Isn't that what Satan offered him in that famous temptation story? When Satan comes to Jesus and basically offers him, hey, you can get glory now. You don't have to go through all that path to suffering. All the kingdoms on earth can all be yours in this moment. Think about all the reasons our Lord Jesus would have had in that moment, to take the path of least resistance. He could have said, I'm God, I deserve to be worshipped now. He could have said, you know, I'm used to angels worshipping me 24-7 in heaven, and now I'm down here on earth, and people don't even recognize me or pay attention to me. Yeah, I deserve it now. But he didn't take that route. Instead, when faced with the choice to suffer or to sin, he chose to suffer. And that wasn't just a one-time choice, was it? Moment after moment in his life, intentionally, um, actively, repeatedly, all the way until Gethsemane, the night before Jesus died. Jesus is making that choice over and over and over again to choose suffering over sin. 
And in Gethsemane, we maybe see it most prominently, right? As Jesus is there sweating drops of blood in the garden as he pleads with his Father in heaven. And what's he pleads to his Father in heaven? He says, let this cup pass. Let this cup pass from me, yet not my will. Will being that the cup would pass, that he would be able to take a shortcut, that he wouldn't have to go through this suffering. He says, not my will, but yours be done. And of course, the Father involved him. And in my place, taking the punishment for sin that we deserved so that we could be with our Heavenly Father in heaven forever. Have you ever considered that nobody's experience with temptation has ever been as intense as Jesus's was? Have you ever thought about that? I know sometimes I've slipped into the thinking, well, no, surely it wasn't as hard for Jesus as it is for me. He's never gone through anything like what I go through temptation-wise because he was perfect and he was God. I'm sure it wasn't hard for him to resist temptation. But when you stop and think about it, the person who struggles the most with temptation, the person for whom temptation is most difficult, is the one who doesn't give in. Think about it. If for no other reason than that those of us who do give in stop short of that next moment of temptation that we would have experienced if we didn't give in, and then the next moment, and then the next moment. And so Jesus, the only one who never gave in to temptation, is the one who has experienced the temptation the most acutely. But yet, time and time again, he chose to suffer rather than to sin. To suffer rather than to sin. What does that mean in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in, at our lunch tables? When we're faced with the choice to suffer or to sin, what we, what, what's happening in that moment is we're finding ourselves in a war. It really is. I mean, Peter's already said so, chapter 2, verse 11. He said that these passions of our flesh wage war against our souls. And then he comes back to that war language again here in the language in verse 1. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of, of thinking. That's, that's battlefield language. You don't want to go into a battle against someone who's armed while you're unarmed. So what are we supposed to arm ourselves with? With what weapons? He says the weapon is the same way of thinking, namely the way of thinking of Jesus, that it's better to suffer than to sin. But now we need to ask why. Why is it better to suffer than to sin? First, Because to suffer in the flesh is to break from sin. To suffer in the flesh is to break from sin. Let's look at that once again in verses 1 and 2. It says, For, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. When anyone gets into a relationship with Christ they also necessarily get a new relationship with sin. That's the way it works, necessarily so, because turning to Christ involves turning from sin. Uh, It's what we call repentance. It's ceasing to walk a certain way and starting to walk in a new way. But what Scripture teaches is that that isn't our only decisive break that we make with sin in in that first moment when we turn to Christ. The language here involves ceasing from sin that happens as a result of suffering. So what does it mean in verse 1 when it talks about ceasing from sin? Well, it can't mean achieving sinless perfection. 
For one, many of us have suffered and yet go on sinning, right? Also, the Bible talks about how no one has achieved sinless perfection or will on this side of heaven. Um, So if it can't mean sinless perfection, then it must mean what it says in verse 2. That when we suffer in the flesh, it's a decisive break from living for human passions and a move toward, a move that confirms us in now living for the will of God. If, if I'm someone who's just playing around with Christianity, if I'm someone who's just kind of dipping my toes in the water and not really sure I want to commit to it, I'm not going to make that choice to suffer rather than to sin. When suffering comes as a result of this faith, I'm going to head for the exits, right? However, if I'm a follower of Jesus, if I'm aiming to go where he goes and that takes me into suffering, then my choice to suffer rather than to sin will confirm me in the path that I've chosen to walk, will confirm the faith that I have professed, that I do indeed belong to Christ. I mean, we see that language there in verse 2, that we used to live for human passions. That was characteristic of us. It was our way of life before. But then there's a shift to living for the will of God. It comes as a result of suffering. Do you know that's the opposite of the shift that the world wants us to make? Every voice around us in the world is trying to get us to live exactly for those human passions. It's that attitude we talked about a few weeks ago, that you do you, right? <laughs> live based on whatever the desires of your heart are. That's what we're being told. That's what we're being told is the authentic life. This says just the opposite. What suffering does is breaks us from that mentality and sets us on a new path in which we're living for the will of God. That gives us one more facet of the role of suffering in our life. We've seen in previous weeks what we might call an outward-facing role of suffering in our life, namely that when I suffer, those around me might see the way I suffer and wonder, hey, what is it about him that's different? I wonder what hope, what's the source of the hope that he has? Now we have an inward, we might call it an inward-facing dimension of suffering, namely that it does something inside of my own heart. It helps me to confirm myself in a decisive break with sin that I made. Now, we won't take a show of hands, but I wonder, I wouldn't be surprised if many of us didn't hear that sort of talk about suffering when we gave our lives to Christ originally. Many of us probably decided to follow Christ because we thought, well, it sounds like he'll meet some of my felt needs. That sounds good. Count me in. But here at North Sub, we want to love you well enough this morning to share with you the reality, the truth that to follow Jesus is to enter into a life of suffering in many ways. And more specifically, it's a call to trade one sort of suffering for another. It's a call to trade in the suffering that comes from slavery to sin and eternal damnation and get in exchange the sort of suffering that comes from identification with Christ. We all suffer, according to chapter 3, verse 17, but we sometimes have a choice between what sort of suffering we experience, and there's some sort of suffering that's preferable to other suffering. But, of course, that leads to the question, if we're going to suffer either way, why not just take the easiest road now, the path of least resistance now while we can? And that brings us to our next reason here, Peter gives that we have spent enough time in sin. That's where he goes next in verse 3. Listen as I read that again. It says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. 
living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. I want to speak just to those who are Christians just for a moment. Um, Have you ever had a time where you slipped into becoming a bit nostalgic about the life you used to live before Christ, the time when you were indulging in sin without really worrying too much about the consequences? Have you ever had a moment where you slipped into that sort of if-only type thinking, if, if only I had just one more, one more chance, one more chance to go back into that life just for a little while and just experience the pleasures of sin freely once again? None of us want to admit it. But many, many of us have slipped into that thinking, at least for a moment. And Peter knows we're prone to go there. And so he says what he says in verse 3. You've spent enough time doing what the Gentiles want to do. Do you see that there in verse 3? The time that has passed suffices. In other words, you've already done enough of that. By the way, Peter's using that Gentile term here in continuation of a move he's been making all throughout this letter, which is that Peter can speak of both uh, of all believers both Jewish believers in Jesus and Gentile believers in Jesus, using language that previously only referred to Jewish people, like a chosen race, a holy nation. He'll talk, he'll talk about us that way in this book. On the flip side, he can use the term Gentiles here to refer not just to Gentile unbelievers, but to Jewish unbelievers as well. He's taking these terms that were previously used in one way and shifting them in terms of their reference. And so when he says what the Gentiles want to do, there in verse 3, he's really saying what unbelievers want to do. What did unbelievers want to do in Peter's day? Same things that they want to do today. The same things that we wanted to do before we came to Christ. Sometimes I think we forget that because we're picturing Bible times as a time of robes and sandals. It seems so far removed from our world of iPhones and Instagram. But do you see this list here in verse 3? Are these things so different from what our world lives for and desires today. Let's take a quick, brief look down the list. Sensuality, giving ourselves over to sexual morality or acts of violence. Passions, that translates a word for strong, sinful human desires. Drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, manifestations of a life dead set on gratifying whatever desires we feel. And then that final item, lawless idolatry, that's using our lives, using our bodies in worship of something other than the one true God. Maybe, maybe, the temptations we face today aren't categorically different from what Christians have been facing, even, even since the first century. Did they become perfect, Peter's readers, once they became Christians and came out of that old lifestyle in which drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties were the norm? No, just as we didn't either, right? But the difference between someone who, before Christ, and someone who has come to know Christ isn't imperfection versus perfection, the difference is largely in what we want, using those terms in verse 3, what the Gentiles want to do. A major change that happens when we come to Christ is what we characteristically, not perfectly, but what we characteristically want in our hearts, in our life. In other words, before coming to know Christ, the current of our lives, we can picture it like a stream, the current was headed in a certain direction. Almost all of our desires pulled in that direction, our human passions. There were exceptions at times. We did nice things for people or we thought about God here and there. But the current was headed in that direction. Then when we came to Christ, the current shifted and did a 180 in the other direction. Now now the, 
the flow of it all, the flow of all our desires is going in a different direction. That What's characteristic of us now is that we want what God wants and we hate what God hates. And then there are those exceptional moments in which we slip into sin, in which we slip into the old way of life, our old sinful desires. That's the change that takes place. A new norm is created when we come to know Christ. That's that dynamic is under what Peter's saying here, and it's very related to our exile theme in this, in this whole letter. When someone's in exile, they have a homeland and they have a host land. You have a homeland that you came from and a host land where you are now. And someone who is in exile may live in many ways according to the customs of the host land where they find themselves, but their hearts are always pulled back for the way of life that they came from in the homeland. And so, check this. If I'm doing inventory in my heart this morning, and I recognize about myself that actually, if I look into my heart and consider my desires, it's much more true of me that I characteristically want to live in a way that's consistent with how everybody else around me is living here in my host land, than what may be true of me is that I'm not actually in exile here at all. Actually, for me, this host land, what I've been thinking is my host land, is actually my homeland. In other words, I don't have a citizenship in heaven like I thought I did. This world is as much home as anything that I have. That could be true of someone this morning. And if that is true of you, if you're finding that to be true of you, if your desires haven't been fundamentally, decisively changed, there hasn't been a break from sin, as this passage talks about, in your life and in your heart and in your desires... What you need this morning are not behavioral tips about how to live in exile. What, what, what you need this morning is a new heart. A new heart that comes along with a new home. A home in heaven. What you need is to set your eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes on him. See him in all of his beauty and his majesty and his love dying for you on that cross. Suffering. On your behalf, what you need is to call on him, throw yourself upon him until he replaces the heart of stone that exists in you, that existed in all of us at one point, and replaces it with the heart of flesh. Because when one of us is, when when our heart of stone is replaced with the heart of flesh, we get a fundamental new set of desires, a new norm in our life. Again, not sinless perfection, but the current starts moving in the opposite direction. That's what Peter has in mind here, and it's wrapped up in his second reason he gives us to imitate Christ's resolve to suffer rather than to sin. This isn't what you want anymore now that you have a new heart. It's not what you want anymore, so why give any more time to it? Now, if you've ever tried to make a break with an old way of life, you know that the people in your life that you used to do those things with don't always appreciate the change that you've made, right? Loved ones don't always appreciate when we stop joining in what we used to join them in. So it's great for a preacher to stand up here and say, we've spent enough time in sin, but the lived reality on the ground is that that's actually really hard to stop living that old life in sin. It's unpleasant. It leads to suffering sometimes in these interactions that are painful with people that we love and care about deeply. So why would we willingly subject ourselves to all that suffering? That brings us to our third and final section The third reason Peter gives is because everyone will give account before God the judge. Because everyone will give account before God the judge. Let's reread verses 4 through 6 to see that. 
with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. It's a little bit of a tenuous analogy, but bear with me. Imagine this. Nine of your best friends from when you were growing up grow up to become the nine Supreme Court justices. Okay? You know that if you're ever involved in a court case that works its way up the ladder, that they'll have your back. They'll see things your way. Right? How does that change your attitude when you lose a case in the lower courts? Doesn't it make you feel just a little bit less stressed about it? Because you know that if this thing gets appealed up and up and up far enough, that the final decision makers have your back. Right? That has to be a little bit of something that what Peter's talking about here when he's indicating, um, suggesting that the highest judge in all the land, in fact in all the universe, is ready to rule in our favor. For those of us who belong in Christ. You see that readiness language in verse 5? He's ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, of course, we may experience some lower court losses along the way. What, what would those lower court losses look like? Well, one would be when the confusion that our friends experience when we leave our old way of life turns into something more than confusion. Do you see that in verse 4? They're surprised at first, but then it can turn into what happens at the end of verse 4. They malign you. Uh, why would they do that, though? Just because we are walking a new way, why would someone malign us for living differently? Well, you know why, right? Put yourself in their shoes, right? I, th- I think about it this way, uh, a parenting analogy, okay? If we're getting together with our neighbors down the street who also have a two-year-old, and I give my two-year-old a lollipop, and I say, oh, other two-year-old friend down the street, here, you want a lollipop too? And they, they jump in, the parents jump in and say, whoa, 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 we don't do lollipops in our family. Here's some kale crisps for you, dear. <laughs> how do you feel in that moment? How do I feel in that moment? I'll tell you how I feel. I feel like, what, you think I'm not a good, <laughs> you think I'm not a good parent? Right? You, you're, you're judging my parenting because I'm giving my two-year-old a lollipop? Um, of course, we feel some of that, right? They don't mean anything by it, of course. But we're going to feel indicted in some way when others refuse to participate in what we're participating in. It's no different with our friends. When we leave behind the life that we used to be living, of course they're going to feel resentful about that. Of course they're going to feel judged by that sometimes. Of course there's going to be some uh, negativity that comes our way, some maligning even. Um, of course, they're going to be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when the world feels that resentment toward us in response to our refusal to participate. Now, when we get maligned like that, it can feel like we've lost. It can feel like the final decision is in. Um, it can feel like the case is closed, the ju- we've been judged and found wanting. But verse 5 is that reminder that there's a higher court that has yet to rule. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And although that sounds ominous a little bit, it actually would have been received as Peter's original readers as very hopeful. Think about it. It's it's actually very encouraging to be reminded that the highest judge in all of the universe is ready to rule in your favor. 
and actually all the people who are maligning you along the way, they're going to have to stand before him one day as well. That's extremely encouraging to someone who's facing uh, mockery time and time again. Now, because that final judgment is coming, let's follow the logic here in verse 6. Because the final judgment is coming, verse 5, this is why the gospel is preached. Verse 6. It's for that reason the gospel is preached. Because of the final judgment coming. In other words, the gospel is preached so that when people stand before God in the end, they don't have to be standing before a judge um, who is unfavorably disposed toward them. We can stand before the judge knowing that he is ready to plead our case. There's so much hope in that, even for those of us who have lost a loved one. And I think that's what Peter has in mind, that when he talks the way he talks in verse 6, there might be some fear when we've lost a loved one that they've experienced death, the final judgment, that it's over for them. But Peter says, no, 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 even death, even the judgment of death, which it is a judgment, I think that's what's wrapped up in that language, it says judged in the flesh the way people are. I think he's talking about human death there. When they experience that death, even that is a lower court decision. The highest court has yet to speak into the situation. That final ruling is yet to come. And when the highest judge speaks, we'll be comforted because that person who has died in the Lord will not have lost anything at all. In fact, they will have gained much. They will be alive with God in the Spirit. To use the language of verse 6, they'll be vindicated in the sight of all. That's a third reason. Everyone will give account before the judge. It's a third reason to imitate Christ's resolve to suffer rather than to sin. That's our big idea for today. Let's imitate Christ's resolve to suffer rather than to sin. But I just want to finish up just with a question that we ask here from time to time. We probably need to start asking it more frequently. Is this passage good advice or good news? Is it good advice or good news? If it was good advice, then the takeaway today would be something like this. Choose suffering over sin so that God won't condemn you. It would be, you can make this good choice if you will power your way to imitating Jesus. Right? Is that what this is saying? Or is it saying something more like this? God won't condemn you because you belong to Christ and Christ chose suffering over sin. Is it saying something more like, you can likewise choose suffering over sin, not by your willpower, but by the empowerment of God's Spirit? I hope it's clear that it's the latter, not the former. And we see that in that language. We want to make sure we didn't miss it in verse 6. This is why the gospel is preached. Think about what Peter could have said there in verse 6. He could have said, final judgment's coming. Therefore, this is why obedience is so important. He doesn't say that. He says, final judgment is coming. Therefore, this is why the gospel is preached. This is why the gospel is preached. Let's sort through some implications of that gospel as we close. When we hear that good news of what God has done through Christ to bring us to him again, when it, when it sinks down in our hearts, when it takes root and starts to blossom and bear fruit in our lives, what happens? Well, according to this passage, when the gospel takes root in our heart, there's some suffering that we are saved from, and there's another category of suffering that we are not saved from. So, namely, we are not saved from experiencing judgments in the court of public opinion. The gospel doesn't save us from that. We may have to go through those lower court losses. However, 
will never experience a loss in the highest court that matters before the king of the universe and the judge of all. That's the good news. The gospel saves us from that. What else? We may, in fact, it's overwhelmingly likely that everyone in this room will face the lower court judgment of death. However, we will not have to face the ultimate judgment of the second death because of what God has done for us in Christ, because of that good news. That sort of suffering, the second death suffering, will not be ours. What else? We, we will struggle with empty pursuits on this earth. The, the gospel doesn't save us from the struggle. However, in the struggle, we will be saved from our bondage to slavery to it. We won't have to be in chains to it anymore because of the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. And that sin has lost its power forever. Have we immersed ourselves in that good news to the degree that it's soaked down deep in our hearts in such a way that our hearts of stone have been removed, replaced with hearts of flesh? Hearts of flesh that are firmly resolved to suffer rather than to sin. Is that, is that true of us? If you haven't received that new heart yet, call upon the Lord. He wants to give that to you. His Holy Spirit wants nothing more than to remove that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that will love him. If you have received that heart of flesh, if you have experienced new life in Christ, a new set of desires, may we be a people who continually endeavor by the power of the Spirit, not by our willpower, to suffer rather than to sin. I'm going to pray here, and then Sarah is going to lead us in uh, some prayer together as we do work around the themes that were brought up in this passage. Heavenly Father, we really do believe it. You're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Nowhere was that shown more clearly than at the cross when you willingly suffered on our behalf to bring us to God, to break the power of canceled sin in our lives, to make it so that sin would no longer have any kind of hold on us. Thank you for the victory that we have in you, the victory that enables us to choose even suffering over sin. Be with us during these coming moments of reflection and confession and lifting you up in prayer. In Jesus' name.